Niño, necesitas ayuda. La Llorona, the weeping phantom who mourns her children and haunts the night. One of the terrifying tales we'll share for Halloween from a diverse slate of local storytellers. Your family had always told you to never wander the north side at night, but that never stopped you. From Colorado Matters and Denverite, this is Denver Fright, horror stories and conversations with horror writers. Horror is the literary and cinematic genre that is best at portraying and helping us cope with grief and really deep, dark feelings that everyone goes through. Plus eco-horror, a genre fueled by climate change. What I call the ecological unraveling. Some people call it collapse. I prefer to think of it as kind of like a ball of yarn unraveling. It's a little nicer image. And I share the absolutely true story of my haunted house. Meeting the growing demand for in-depth news and music exploration across Colorado is time-consuming and expensive work. And member support is central to delivering the local stories you rely on. I'm Jason Moore, Membership Director at Colorado Public Radio. Your support today upholds impartial journalism, intelligent debate, and an informed, curious community. Members are part of something special at CPR, and we want you to know that you are truly appreciated. Begin or renew your membership today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Tomorrow's Halloween, although you might have partied and pumpkined over the weekend. And today we dedicate our show to horror stories. I gotta be honest, the world is horrific enough right now. Part of me wondered if this was the time or place. Then it occurred to me writing horror, reading it too, gives us control of the storyline. And there's something empowering about that, given how easy it is to feel helpless. So let's shamble over to Denver's Bug Theater, where our colleagues at Denverite hosted Denver Fright, an evening of ghost stories from a range of cultures and perspectives. A little later, I'll share the story of my haunted house. Now, though, your co-hosts, Obed Manuel and Desiree Matherin. <laughs> Welcome to Denver Fright. I'm Desiree Matherin, neighborhood reporter with Denverite. And I'm Obed Manuel, Denverite's editor. What do you call a group of horror writers? Perhaps a murder? <laughs> I like that. I like that. But Obed, you're going to kick us off for tonight, right? With your own horror story? That's correct. Sweet. Let's sit in our haunted parlor. Just jumping in to say the haunted parlor features two chairs and a fireplace, along with a brouhaha of candles. So, Des, about 10 years ago, when I was in college and had way less back pain, uh, (laughs) I was out shopping with my parents at a small neighborhood store that we had never visited before. Uh, This place was full of antiques, vintage clothes, piles and piles of books, and it had a vibe. Deep, dark, purple walls, crystals hanging everywhere, black candles that paid homage to La Santa Muerte, and other deities that, let's say, for the folks who dabble in the occult. And then there was the owner. Uh, She wore a black lace shawl draped over her shoulders. She wore pronounced eyeliner, and she had a big mole on her left cheek. So from this old wooden counter, from the moment we walked into the store, she fixed her gaze on my father. I should note here 
that my late father was a Protestant minister. Um, as I perused the books, I found an old black one that had no title, so I flipped the first few pages, and there it read, The Complete Apocrypha. I was very interested, so I took the book to the counter to, to pay for it. She picked it up, and she weighed it. It was almost like she was giving it a sniff test. She turned immediately to my father and said, This is like a Bible thing, isn't it? My father responded, this, the Apocrypha, is a collection of contested religious texts that are not considered canonical to Christian doctrine. She dropped it immediately. Take it, and I'm closing in five minutes. This is the middle of the day. A few hours later, I asked my father, why do you think she didn't charge us for the book? These stores can barely afford to stay open. He said, I don't think she knew what she had until we told her. Whatever she believes in, whatever path she's chosen, whatever spirits she deals with, may have prevented her from benefiting in any way from this book. I said, Dad, you saying she was a witch? He said, what I'm saying is that no matter which one you think is right or wrong, you can't have light without the darkness. <laughs> that literally sent a chill down my spine, <laughs> mainly because I have a tattoo on my back that says something really similar. Um, I, <laughs> I do. Big dink. <laughs> I'm half Caribbean, and, and one of my big teachings growing up is that there's a big duality in life. Um, you can't have the good without the bad and, and the evil without the good, and that's what's on my back. So <laughs> that definitely was a great way to start us off. Thank you. Thank you, Des. Thank you. All right, guys, it's time for the real storytellers. <laughs> the first school up is Lindsay King Miller. Lindsay's not locked into any one genre. She even had a stint as an advice columnist, but horror was always where her little dark heart lie. From cute little stories inspired by the Goosebumps series to a forthcoming novel about zombies and pride fest, here's Lindsay. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So advice columnist to queer horror, why make the switch? Yeah, I, I have always, horror has always been there for me. I've done a lot of other kinds of writing in my life, but I've always loved horror movies. I've always loved horror novels. I feel like horror delves into these really deep, visceral emotions. And in some ways, I think that Horror is the literary and cinematic genre that is best at portraying and kind of helping us cope with grief and loss and really deep, dark feelings that everyone goes through. Horror is an incredibly effective way of portraying that, and it can be very cathartic, and it can also just, I think, help us feel like we're a little less alone, like somebody understands just how dark it can really get. And that can be kind of a beautiful thing. And speaking of coping mechanisms, the story you'll read for us mixes imagined horrors with real life trauma and angst, right? Tell us a little bit about it. Sure, so um, it is a, it's a changeling story. I don't wanna spoil it too much because I'm about to read it. But um, 
It was inspired by a story called Summer by the phenomenal um, horror author Tanana Reeve Dew from her short story collection, Ghost Summer, which I highly recommend that everyone check out. And it's a story about this very worn down, overworked, at the end of her rope, single mother, whose baby she comes to believe is possessed. But the possessing entity is very quiet and calm and doesn't express a lot of of needs. And it's almost a relief to this worn to the bone woman that suddenly her baby isn't screaming all the time. So it's kind of this tension between it's not her real child, she thinks it's not her real child, but at the same time, she's so relieved to finally get a break. You know, as a parent, you read that and it hits, or it hits me anyway in this like kind of dark, scary spot of how would you really feel in that situation? I thought it was so fascinating and I, that story has been on my mind for years and finally I wrote this story, which is kind of a response to that one, kind of not, but sort of from the point of view of the child, what if you had been replaced by a changeling and your parents got you back and then wished they hadn't? Let's hear it. When you were a baby, you were stolen by the fairies, my mother says over dinner. I keep eating my salad. She tells this story a lot. They left a baby in your crib and she looked exactly like you. Those same blonde curls, those pink cheeks, those sparkling hazel eyes. You were such a pretty baby. The past tense stings, as always. I used to believe this story when I was little. I even tried to tell some girls at school so they'd know I was special, that the fairies had wanted me for their own. This was a mistake, showing my innocence, my weakness. I was too old to believe in fairies, they said. Too old not to know that mothers lie. But she wasn't you, she goes on when I don't respond. I looked into those big baby eyes and I saw absolutely nothing. I focus on crunching the lettuce between my teeth, the sting of vinegar on my tongue. I wish for a piece of bread, crusty on the outside, soft and white in the middle to soak up what's left of the dressing. But bread is forbidden in our house now. It's for my own good, my mother tells me, cupping my cheek in her hand. I know she's measuring the fat there, feeling for the bone underneath. She didn't cry, my mother says softly. I cry all the time. I cried this afternoon when Angus Dorman stole my notebook and read it out loud to the kids on the bus. All those humiliating fantasies strewn between the seats like spilled Cheetos and crushed into neon grime. Love poems punctuated here and there with an awful, damning she. They come from the woods, my mother says. So that's where I went to get you back. Last year, I tried to tell her. I stood in the doorway of her bedroom and said, I think I'm gay. My mother looked up at me, her eyes bright and tender, and said, Oh, sweetheart. And for a moment, I thought she would say she loved me no matter what. Is this because you think you're not pretty enough to get a boyfriend? She pulled me into a hug. I couldn't move. Don't worry, baby, she said. This diet is going to work wonders, you'll see. And once you're down a dress size or two, we'll get your hair done and buy some nice new clothes. All the boys will want to take you out. That was three diets ago. So far, no wonders have been worked, but my mother never gives up hope. I carried that baby out into the woods. It was so cold, but she didn't cry. She just kept staring at me with those empty eyes. 
I set her on the ground, and she still didn't make the slightest noise, and I built a fire. I think about the poem I ripped from my notebook, the one Angus read out loud. Her fingers like mist, her mouth on mine a thundercloud. After I tore it out, I shoved it in my mouth and let the paper turn to mush on my tongue. This salad tastes like that. I chew until I can't taste anything, then swallow the nothing. My stomach clenches like an empty fist. I knew the fairy mother wouldn't let any harm come to her baby, my mother says. So I picked it up and held it over the fire. She shakes her head. I almost stopped right there because what if I was wrong? What if I was about to hurt my real baby? But I looked that creature in its eyes and I knew it wasn't you. And I let go. I can imagine the heat of the flames with perfect clarity, the smell of wood smoke rising into the cold, damp air, my mother's look of stony determination. There's some truth to this story, after all. She'll do anything to get her real daughter back, her right daughter, the daughter she should have had. She'll burn away all the parts of me that aren't supposed to be. The baby fell, my mother says, and even though she's told this story a thousand times, her voice goes quiet and reverent. And then it stopped falling. For a second, I thought it was hovering in the air until I saw the hands that caught it. I couldn't make them out at first because they were the same color as the forest at night. This part of the story was my favorite as a child. My mother turning her head slowly to find a shape beside her, like a woman, but stranger, softer, melting at the edges. Her skin was blue or black or green, her mouth like an enormous knothole in a tree, and within, there you were, my mother whispers. I know none of this happened, but I still wish I could remember it. My mother taking me carefully from the fairy's mouth, carrying me home in the warmth of her arms, lying awake all night to watch my face, to make sure I was never lost to her again. Dessert is avocado pudding. Flavored with chocolate and cinnamon, it still tastes like nothing but green sliming the back of my throat. I'm so hungry, but I can't swallow another bite. May I be excused, I ask. She beams at me for leaving food on the table. In my room, I light a candle that claims to smell like pumpkin pie, something I've never tasted. The scent that fills the room is warm and spicy sweet, and I think about scraping the softening wax with a fingernail, placing it in my mouth. Instead, I hold my hand high over the flame and bring it down slowly, like lowering a flag. The heat is golden and lovely in the center of my palm until it sharpens and stings. I lower my hand further. The pumpkin pie smell goes wrong, sugar burning at the edges. My arm trembles, and in a second, I'll have to flinch or scream. Cool fingers lace through mine. The pain eases. I'm holding hands with a cloud. She's here, under the trees where my bedroom wall used to stand. She's made of water and moonlight with round cheeks and hazel eyes. This isn't the mother. It's the daughter, the one who was supposed to be me. I recognize her from my love poem. Shadows roll down her face like teardrops. Our fingers are still entwined. I don't know if she's here to steal me or save me, but I follow her without question. She leads me into the dark between the trees where mushrooms grow in magic rings. I know you're never supposed to eat anything offered by a fairy, so I don't wait for her to offer. I kneel 
and pluck and bite. The flesh is warm on my tongue. A single taste fills me like nothing I've ever eaten. Breaking another mushroom from its stem, I look up at her, my changeling, my shadow self. I hold out the mushroom, but she doesn't take it. She takes me instead. She kisses me, and my heart grows a forest. Woo. Thank you. Changeling by Denver author Lindsay King Miller. Her forthcoming novel, her first, is called The Z Word. It's about a zombie outbreak during Pride. Lindsay sat in our haunted parlor with Denverite's Desiree Matherin. More from Denver Fright at the Bug Theater when we return. The true story of my haunted house. Family, family, family. I go to war with my family. Ups and downs, wrong or right, this family. They think that we crazy. They say that we crazy, can't handle it. By the way, all the break music in today's show comes from a Spotify playlist Denverite put together called Scary Sounds. Check it out at denverite.com and caution that some of the tracks contain explicit lyrics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You should know it's not just me that you'll be wrong way, so you better think twice. They didn't want the mural there, and they asked me to paint over it. And I refused to do it, so I lost my job. Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about Denver's street art. Take this white paint. And I want you to use it to indicate for us your experience with white supremacy in America. Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Credit Union of Colorado. For Halloween, we're sharing scary stories thanks to our colleagues at Denverite, who helped us assemble a murder of local horror writers. We gathered at Denver's Bug Theater around a fireplace and too many candles with hosts Obed Manuel and Desiree Matherin. Des welcomed me into the haunted parlor. How are you today? I'm okay. So I heard you have a story for us as well. I have a story and it is 100% true. All right, take it away. I bought a house in Denver from a dead man. He had died on the property. The whole transaction felt haunted. My down payment bounced. The deal fell through twice. It's like he couldn't let the place go. But a woman who claimed to be psychic came up to me while I was getting my hair cut and reassured me the condo would indeed be mine. She asked, does it have big vertical windows that face east, lots of trees outside? It did. It will be yours, she said. When the deal finally closed, a new AG friend of mine suggested I do a cleanse of the condo spiritually. She knew a woman who did this sort of work. And I can get you a deal if she can bring her students, my friend added, knowing I love a discount. (laughs) And that's how half a dozen women, their palms raised in front of them, came to wander around my property. I'd revealed only to their teacher that the previous occupant had died there. She kept it from her pupils, curious to see which ones would pick up on the history. So they meandered around my new digs, eyes often closed, 
trying to sense something, anything. Their teacher explained the process to me. They were erecting imaginary scaffolds of light, illuminating the space in their minds, and then clearing the scaffolding out, leaving behind peace. Once the ritual was over, they all sat facing me in a semicircle in my new living room. The teacher had them share what, if anything, they picked up on one by one. A woman told me I should put my kitchen knives in a less prominent place, (laughs) perhaps stowing them. Another healer brought up someone named Robert associated with the dining room. It only later dawned on me that's where I had a photo of my grandfather, Leo Robert Peterson. And only in writing this essay did it occur to me that I would later adopt a cat named Bob. And just when I thought no clairvoyant in training had picked up on the previous owner's passing, the last woman spoke. She'd sensed death in one particular spot, the spot where he had died. I think I gasped, nervously laughed a little, not because I thought it was creepy or morose or even all that surprising. I think it was mostly relief that someone could sense this man's presence and just maybe set him free. Thank you for that. I'm never coming to your house. (laughs) You're going to rebuff my invitation, I will rebuff it every single time. Okay, okay. (laughs) So I'm going to get out of here. Ryan is going to stick around the haunted Paula and present our next storyteller. Thank you. Scarier to me than zombies or vampires is the real-life threat of climate change, which is something Josh Schlossberg thinks about as well. He haunts a particular genre called eco-horror. Josh lives in Longmont, and he's a founding member of the Denver Horror Collective. His new book is indeed a work of eco-horror called Charwood, and let's give him a blood-curdling welcome. (laughs) Josh, thank you so much for being with us. I am psyched to be here. Tell us about your costume. What is it and why are you wearing it? What costume are you referring to? <laughs> My normal getup? I don't know. I think maybe plague doctor is a relevant thing these days. Yeah, plague doctor. How creepy did you find the pandemic? Was it inspiration for a writer? Yes, lots of fodder and nightmare probably for decades to come. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Uh, Would you describe eco-horror for us and maybe like how active a genre it is? So eco-horror, not (laughs) ego-horror. So it's not that active. I think a lot of eco-horror is just kind of when you look around, but we're trying to establish it more in the fiction world. And I think you might have seen maybe some films that have aspects of it, but I predict it's going to be more and more popular. You think that's probably a function of climate change and the quickening of that? Climate change and what I call the ecological unraveling. So some people call it collapse. I prefer to think of it as kind of like a ball of yarn unraveling. It's a little nicer image. Oh, thanks for comforting us in the face. (laughs) It's my job. 
of entropy, of the, of the end. As I said, Charwood is your new book, and you describe it more precisely as an ecological Jewish folk horror novel. The protagonist, Orna Tannenbaum, must apply the ancient wisdom of her culture to battle dark forces. Um, but your reading tonight comes from a different story, which first appeared in the No Sleep podcast. It's set in the Denver foothills, and before you read it, I'd love to have you reflect on whether there's something uniquely creepy about this area where the plains and the mountains meet. I think it's got to do with the mountains, right? It has to be the mountains. It has to be also the fact that here we have a city where we can see the mountains. You can kind of slip between the two worlds. Some people say it has something to do with the minerals. Maybe it's that smog crap that you see. I don't know what's going on exactly. But it does attract some really weird people and some weird stories. Do you want to set yours up and take it away? Nothing to set up. I'm just going to go up there and read it. Sounds good. (laughs) This is Creepy Old Dude. Three days in a row. Three days in a row, I took my morning walk around my new neighborhood, a kind of rocky mountain suburbia where tall meadow grass sprouts from the sloping yards of earth-toned homes, and he was walking up his driveway. Three days in a row, just after 7 a.m., I left my cul-de-sac, perking my ears to make sure no car was coming around the blind curve, and walked onto the road along the ridge of the hill. Cool autumn air warming in the rising sun, breathtaking view of snow-capped mountains in the distance, skinny old guy with the perv mustache walking his ugly little poodle on a leash. (laughs) As always, dressed in puffy winter jacket, wool hat, jeans and boots, he waved without a smile. And though my hand felt like a 20-pound plate, I waved back. Mathematically, the chances of meeting him at the exact same spot where the driveway from his modest ranch home met the street two days in a row had to have been one in a thousand. But three days? More like one in a million. Especially since I'd never laid eyes on him before a full three weeks after moving out of hot, noisy Denver. Irritated, I kept walking along the ridge and down the hill, turned around and went back up. Sure enough, he stood in the shade of the Ponderosa Pines where my cul-de-sac connects to the road, as if waiting for me, his dog snuffling the grass. My stomach turned even though I hadn't eaten breakfast. You might be wondering what's the big deal about an elderly man walking his dog Why would I even notice such a thing, much less let it bother me? I'll tell you why. It was his vibe, a heaviness rising off him like heat from summer pavement that almost made me feel like puking. And no, I'm not that way with anyone else. I have no problem greeting the husky middle-aged jogger huffing by on his morning run, happy to say hi to the kids boy of maybe 11, girl of probably nine, waiting for the school bus. 
I even wave at the 20-something blonde in the yellow Jeep who speeds past me every weekend morning on her way back from who knows what late night escapades. Yet this guy, I couldn't help but tense up when I was around, like he'd done me some wrong and I was holding a grudge my conscious mind couldn't remember, though my body did deep in my bones. So pause here. I don't have time to read the whole story, so I'm going to summarize the middle, which has our protagonist running into the creepy dude several times until he finally confronts the older man and threatens to beat him up. <laughs> After that, the guy, he's nowhere to be found, and soon our protagonist feels bad about bullying him. So we'll pick up again where he goes to knock on the man's front door to apologize. Whistling a happy tune, I amble down his driveway and knock on the front door. I'm jolted by a deep, loud barking from inside. No way that tiny poodle is making these sounds. Before I can worry if I've got the right place, a clean-shaven 30-something man in collared shirt and slacks answers the door. Behind him, a brunette in blouse and skirt holds a snarling boxer by its collar. Sorry to bother you, I say, tentatively and a bit confused. Is that older fellow around? Your dad, maybe? He squints. My folks live in Phoenix. Oh, hers, maybe. I nod toward the woman who struggles to keep the growling dog from charging me. The man shakes his head and I catch a whiff of his piney cologne. They're in Denver. What's this about? I figure they're just being protective. In my kindest voice, I ask, who's the elderly man who lives with you? He gives me a blank look. I dry swallow, nervous for some reason. With the poodle? Sounds like you got the wrong address, he shrugs. Sorry, we're getting ready for work. My armpits drip and I'm jittery as if I'd had too much coffee. Surely I haven't been hallucinating. Before he can close the door, I blurt out, you're saying an old man with a black poodle doesn't live here? Before he can respond, the woman, who's finally calmed the boxer to a low whine, chimes up. You mean the guy who used to own the place? Used to? My tense shoulders relax. At least I'm not seeing things. When was that? We've been here almost three years, she says. The realtor mentioned him. Late 70s? That's him. I sigh with relief, certain I've figured it out. He's still in the neighborhood. I think he's got dementia and keeps forgetting he doesn't live here anymore. The woman furrows her brow and shakes her head. The boxer is finally quiet. He didn't move. He died. No. Dizzy, I stagger back a step. You can look it up online, she nods. Winner of 2019, I think. Someone speeding past a stop school bus almost ran over a couple of kids. At the last second, the guy pushed them out of the way, got creamed himself. Poor little doggy, too. The sky spins and I rub my eyes until I see stars. That's when the boxer breaks free and bolts towards the door. The man slams it in my face just in time. In a daze, I stumble up the driveway, tripping over my own feet. A ghost. I've seen a freaking ghost. I threatened to beat up a ghost? No wonder the heavy vibes coming from the old guy. He's dead. Then a chill down my back. 
and maybe out for revenge? Nauseous, I pace along, staring down at the cracked pavement. If ghosts are real, does that mean there's an afterlife? I picture my grandparents dressed in white, floating on a cloud. Does everyone become a ghost, or is it like the books and movies where they have unfinished business? How many are out there? Have I seen others before and just not known it? Can everyone see them or just some of us? What about the poodle? Dogs could be ghosts too? <laughs> Can all animals? Brain boiling like a tea kettle, I reach the top of the hill. Why is this guy haunting me of all people? It's not like we have any history. Before last month, I hadn't even set foot in the neighborhood. I'm so caught up by the whirlwind of thoughts, I don't notice I'm in the middle of the street. Not until the yellow Jeep roars around the blind curve, headed straight for me. Josh, I love all the questions you raise. You know, can ghosts be dogs? Um, do you, is there any question you want to answer for yourself of the ones you raised? I wonder if insects can have ghosts, and I think yes. <laughs> the next time I kill an ant, I'll think about that. Josh Schlossberg of Longmont, everyone. His new novel is called Charwood. More of Denver Fright, our night of ghost stories, after a break. We gathered at the Bug Theater on the city's north side, and that's where our next terrifying tale is set. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC and Denverite. Before Cheeseman was a popular Denver park, it was a cemetery, a largely neglected cemetery for outlaws, the poor, and the diseased. But by 1890, as the neighborhood around it grew, residents wanted something more pleasant. First, the dead had to be moved. After loved ones claimed some, 5,000 other bodies remained. An undertaker hired to move them turned out to be unscrupulous. He crammed corpses, sometimes more than one, into cheaper child-sized coffins. The city fired but did not replace him, and work on the park proceeded above and around the remaining graves. When that process was completed, the family of Denver pioneer Walter Cheeseman donated the Greek neoclassical marble pavilion that still anchors the park that bears his name. It's the backdrop for many a photograph, wedding, and ghost story. Because every now and then, a body or two is unearthed. A reminder of Cheeseman Park's origin. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of National Jewish Health. More from the Bug Theater now on Denver's North Side, where our sister publication, Denverite, assembled a murder of local authors for a live event called Denver Fright. Here again, our co-host, Obed Manuel. Our final storyteller is Manuel Aragon. Uh, he was born and raised in Denver. He is a writer, filmmaker, and director telling stories about his beloved North Side, telling stories about uh, the ever-changing nature of this area. He is currently editing uh, his book called Norteñas, uh, which, as he puts it, is about the people, the ghosts, and the demons who live here. So without further ado, please welcome Manuel Aragón. Hey, 
Why focus so much of your storytelling on the North Side? So I'm North Side, born and raised. And I, I think for me, it is it, it's a place that's really formative, right? And so when I think of my story collection, I'm writing about the things that I know, the people that I know. You know, I think one of the things that happened as Denver gentrified was our culture and our history was erased. And I, I think about writing this book and it's restoring us and our place in history, right? That the North Side tends to be very reductive. I think for folks who moved from suburbs into North Denver that it was violent and that was the story that was told, which it was multi-layered, it was complex. There was poor Latinos lived with wealthy Latinos and we were really multifaceted. And I think this erasure, you know, it can be really harmful to a people when we reduce them to a really singular narrative. And I think for me, writing the collection is about presenting the fullness of our people. And, and what do you think is the power of that type of storytelling, focusing it there? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I love about our neighborhood is that uh, <laughs> we're raw. In that authenticity, it's filled with laughter and sorrow and joy. And, and I think in presenting that fullness, we not only is it about telling like my family's story, it's about acknowledging that we come from a culture that's so deeply rooted in storytelling and giving that nod to the neighbors and neighborhood and folks who carry their histories with them. And so I think for me, it's that the like particular history that I'm writing about is like, one facet of the North Side. And I hope it inspires folks to like share their own North Side stories. Excellent. We're going to get a taste of that tonight. Manuel, take it away. The stage is yours. Okay, so this is a La Llorona story from my collection, Norteñas. Uh, and it's called Your Family Has a Secret. One of the themes throughout the collection is about how I think Latino families have this layer of we know a lot about our families. There's like oversharing, right? And you know that when your uncle comes to Thanksgiving by himself, it is that he's getting a divorce because he's cheated on spouse and things of that nature, right? But then there's this additional layer of secrecy that we just don't talk about. And so that's what this is about. Your family has a secret. Your family has a secret. Hushed voices and whispers, they say, Things that you cannot quite process. Your abuelita, a storyteller, a curandera, tapping into the magic of the world that your mother has asked you to stay away from. Abuela leads the family circle, shares the hands and the power, your mother and grandfather, their wisdom and their stories too. You all gather weekly in their small, tiny, welcoming, warm apartment in the north side, just off of 44th and Clay. 358 square feet, small, but infinitely vast. They tell and talk of the things that move and moan about in the night, but you are a child, young, taking in their words as just that, stories, nothing more, nothing less, things that are not true, but your family has a secret. Your family had always told you to never wander the north side at night, but that never stopped you. There was not a fear holding you back. They say that you should be afraid of what lay behind the shadows, moving in the night, Beware, you'll see her wandering and weaving, moaning and moving towards you when you're out at night. 
Children, where did you go? Where did you first see her, hear her voice? How did she find you? She knew your name and your family. She had been waiting for you. Mija, preciosa, is that you? They say that there's a woman walking, crying, wailing, screaming, moving through the night. And you can hear her on some summer nights when you keep those windows open, on those summer nights when you can't sleep and it's too quiet. It starts, the wind, a slight breeze, feels like it's cooling you down and turns into a howl, a shriek, a desperate yearning, heat, a call for your soul. When you hear the howls as a child, your mother would tell you that it was a creature, an animal, because you were afraid of ghosts, of monsters, the truth, of death. You were afraid of what happened to this particular woman and her children. Where did they go? Before you were brown, before we were indigenous, Latinx, before Spanish came from our tongue, she was there. She's been wandering the land since the first sun before time began. When this was Cheyenne land and that of the Arapaho, the Ute, she was there. She's been searching for you for years, looking near rivers and streams, calling out names and languages we no longer speak, in search of loved ones and hers who have moved on and away, and those that have been taken from her. They say that she lost the children, or they say that she killed her children, but the stories of men often obscure the true horrors of this world. Your abuela did not believe in the ghosts, but believed in this woman because she was not a ghost. Her mother had seen her wandering at night with the moon fully lit and had watched her disappear and reappear again. Your family has a secret. They've been running for generations and she's been chasing us from Guanajuato to Texas along the rivers and lakes in the rainy season when the land would flood, from Texas to Illinois along the plains and the farmlands. Perhaps she too could travel by train from Joliet to Fort Morgan, along the plains, until she found her way here, roaming the streets of the north side, the west side, GES, and the south side. Your father's family had seen her in the rivers and valleys along the pueblos of Nuevo Mexico. She's there at the family church in the valley where we lived for generations. She's there in the town square after the fiesta, shutting down the parties. She's there in the cemetery across from the Catholic church, the one where they buried all of the Indios y Latinos, the headstones with no names. And you, you're here, or at least your family ended up here. And the sounds of the city, they can be terrifying, the wails and the screams on a Saturday night. They're reminders that people are living, that people are dying. They're reminders of ghosts, a red light that emits from the house down the block where the father-in-law killed his son and daughter-in-law. Reminders of the ghosts sitting on the benches of the basketball courts, dreaming of what could have been. Reminders of the ghosts when the music plays through the vents in your house and there are no musical instruments anywhere. Reminders on the corner and in the bars, yelling and shouting. But through the noise and the violence, the silences were even more piercing. A warning that the danger was on the horizon. That's what your dad told you. Where he was from, silence was always in the air. And in the silence, you could hear her. Niño, necesitas ayuda. And there she was, bright like the moon one night. Bright, like the night that your abuela saw her on the farm when her family was spending that summer, the long hot days of Texas picking crops like they did, each summer moving on the backs of trains across the country. This was not home, but had become their home. 
The children did what they could to entertain themselves while the adults, tired from the day, would sit around and play cards. Abuela had been out playing with her primos, a game of hide-and-seek amongst the crops, the best place to hide when it was dark. She'd gone near the river, under a road, waiting for cousins to find her, and she could hear something scratching at crops. Niña, donde esta tus padres? Don't talk to her, your bisabuela would tell her. And she would recall this years later, she had not talked to the woman, but the woman to her, and looked through her. Chica, estoy hablando con yo. ¿Cómo se llamas? She is glowing, her face at once full of beauty, at once full of death. The woman washed her hands in the river like she would have washed her clothes. It's okay, you can talk to me. Your sister said you were looking for me. I'll wait with you. Your grandmother and her sister would never talk about this night until they were well into adulthood. Their mother was in her failing days, crying out on her deathbed. No, 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 please leave me alone. They had not heard the story until then and shared their own stories of seeing her. They had shared a secret, a secret that your family held on to. And yours, yours is a family that is haunted by this secret. The stories that you don't tell, the stories they refuse to tell. Your brother asks you to tell him. Tell him. Where did she find you? Did you hear her talking about her son, how his hair and yours were darker brown black as the night, and comparing your eyes to his? Mio, estás llorando. There's nothing to be afraid of because she is here to take care of you and comfort you, watch over you, protect you, and tell you it's going to be all right. You can still hear her voice when the night is quiet and your mind is racing. You can still hear her inside your heart. And you ask your brother, when the moon is full, do you ever still see her? Thank you. Manuel, thank you so much for that. Watch out for the north side, Yorona. Thank you so much. And let's give a round of applause for Manuel and the rest of our storytellers. Author Manuel Aragon on stage at the Bug Theater with Obed Manuel, editor of Denverite. At denverite.com, there's video of this event and a bonus story, Roots by D.L. Cordero. We'll air an excerpt of that tomorrow, Halloween. And don't forget our Scary Sounds playlist on Spotify. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hi, de mi llorona, llorona de azul celeste. Y aunque la vida me cueste, llorona, no dejaré de quererte. The life of a rodeo cowboy is not easy. Driving, flying, hitchhiking, doing whatever you can do to get to a rodeo. But for J.C. Trujillo, it all paid off. He became a world champion bareback rider. Decades later, at age 75, he's about to be inducted into the National Rodeo Hall of Fame. With all my heroes, you know, unbelievable. Meet the famed Colorado cowboy at CPR.org. 
Finally today, new music that captures this season's haunting atmosphere. Singer-songwriter Racine Parker of Westminster moved to Colorado from Southern Oregon at a truly scary time, March of 2020. How are we to know what was going to happen? It was literally the week everything was closed and I was pulling a U-Haul out and I went to go grab a cup of coffee at a Starbucks and they're like, don't come inside. And I was like, what do you mean? And the U-Haul can't fit through the drive-thru. They gave me my coffee and they wouldn't take my cash. And I just said, I'm sorry. And it was very strange. Now, three and a half years after COVID hit, Parker finally feels like she's coming into her own here, presenting Colorado audiences with her country-ish sound. On her new single, Make It Out Alive, which dropped on Friday the 13th this month, she sets a melancholic mood with hypnotic guitar picking, weeping pedal steel, and a lonesome whistle. thinking of showdowns in western movies oh i want a soundtrack people like running through the woods i was kind of thinking of these like images some of the music came before the lyrics marching footsteps here they come a spineless shiver they know what you've done got really honest about how I was actually feeling in a tough moment. That tough moment was the sudden death of a loved one. Through lyrics, Parker wrestles with her inner demons and yearns for closure from that dark chapter. It's time to face the music. Tears laced with excuses. member last year and it was really tough and so processing grief and the anger and sort of confusion surrounding you know a loss in my family lyrically it's facing grief facing anger and sort of coming out on top of that in a way where you feel like I'm maybe better for it even if I'm a little beat up double cross double dust straight into Make It Out Alive from Westminster singer-songwriter Racine Parker. She'll perform at the Eddie Taproom and Hotel in Golden this Friday and at the Roxy on Broadway in Denver later in November. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our colleagues at Denverite, to the folks at the Bug Theater, as well as audio engineer Pedro Lombrano. I'm Ryan Warner, here with Colorado Matters from CPR Boost.